I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Brianna Draxler. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, December 6th, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, we talk to author Jim Motivalli about his new book on the future of electric vehicles. And correspondent Shelley Schlender takes a provocative look at acne treatment. Is saying that diet doesn't cause acne because the glycemic index has been around since 1981. Let's take a look at what's new in science. Brianna, what do you have? So what do you get when you combine population ecology, genetics, and applied mathematics? Scientists at UCLA have combined them to create an innovative new model to help predict how species will respond to climate change. The research team unveiled their integral projection model on Friday. The model considers data about changing environmental conditions, as well as information about a species, such as lifespan and reproduction. Researchers can change a single variable in the model, like temperature, and see the effects on various factors in the health of the population. Robert Wayne led the research team. He's an ecology and evolutionary biology professor at UCLA. Wayne combined forces with Tom, Tim Coulson, an expert in applied mathematics and population biology at Imperial College London. The model they came up with is unique because it considers all factors of a population simultaneously. And it can be applied to any species, from polar bears to beetles, even plants. The model allows scientists to tease out the specific causes that lead to problems in a population. Knowing direct causes and effects is important in complex ecosystems. It will allow scientists to prescribe more accurate solutions, too. The researchers found that a gradual but continuous change in the environment is actually more detrimental to a species than fluctuations in the environment. So a slow rise in temperature over a long period of time can affect a species' viability, fertility, population size, body size, and even generation length. Since global climate change is predicted to cause gradual changes over time, this model has great potential for preventing harm to some populations. The team of scientists hopes their model will lead to a more informed protection and recovery efforts for species threatened by climate change. The research was published in Science Magazine on Friday. On Monday, Paris launched an electric car sharing program called Autolib, which is modeled after their successful bike sharing program. 250 vehicles were released into the pool yesterday, with another 3,000 planned within two years. To use the car, a driver would just press a smart card against the driver's window, and the four-seater compact electric vehicle unlocks and is ready to go. The goal of the program is to reduce urban air pollution and noise. And on a historical note, Thomas Edison demonstrated the first recording of sound 134 years ago today. Edison recited, Mary Had a Little Lamb, into the new machine at his laboratory in Menlo Park, New Jersey. The patent was issued in 1878. Last week, astrophysicist Jeffrey Bennett offered copies of his two new books, Math for Life, Crucial Ideas You Didn't Learn in School, and a children's book called The Wizard Who Saved the World as a premium for a new or renewing KGNU membership. The response was outstanding, and we ran out of all of our copies. So Dr. Bennett has provided us with more copies of his books. So give us a call now at 303-449-4885 and pledge a KGNU membership at the $40 level. You can choose one of the books as a premium. 
Better yet, pledge at the $60 level and you can get both books. Since it is the holiday season, you could tick off two items on your shopping list by getting the Wizard Book as a gift for a young person and pledge a KGNU membership as a gift for someone else. That phone number again is 303-449-4885. You're tuned to Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. We all know well the problems associated with our addiction to gasoline, the gasoline engine, local air pollution, climate change, and supportive despotic governments, to name a few. Electric vehicles, or EVs, are a partial solution to those problems, but they've always been just out of reach, until this year when they started to hit the market. Jim Montevalli is joining us by phone from his home in Fairfield, Connecticut. Jim is the author of a new book titled High Voltage, The Fast Track to Plug-In the audio industry, and is going to help us sort out some of the issues around EVs. Mr. Matavali is an auto journalist who writes for the New York Times, Car Talk, the Mother Nature Network, and Plug In Cars. Jim has been covering the emerging electric vehicle industry for the last decade. Jim, welcome to How on Earth. Great to be on. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, Jim, with with the release of the uh, uh, the Chevy Volt and the Nissan Leaf uh, last year, uh, electric vehicles went from being a, a curiosity into the big leagues. Um, there's a lot of different flavors of electrics, and the picture's uh, probably a bit blurry to many of our listeners. Uh, can you clarify the taxonomy, taxonomy of uh, electrics, hybrids, and so on? Sure. We can start with the most basic form, which is the hybrid car, where you have electricity sort of as a turbocharger, supercharger that aids the uh, internal combustion engine and allows it to be smaller, thus more fuel efficient. And we all know this from the Toyota Prius and others like it. If you ratchet that up a little bit and you give it a bigger battery pack and the ability to plug into the wall, you get the plug-in hybrid. And that's the Chevy Volt and others like it, including the Fisker Karma. But if you take away the internal combustion engine entirely, you get a battery car like the Nissan Leaf, and that's a wholly dependent on the battery pack, and that's about 100 mile of range. Well, the great advantage of the plug-in hybrid is it probably can go 400 miles because you have both the gas engine and the electric motor. So, Jim, the, the big downside of electrics is that they're, uh, they're slow and boring, right? No. <laughs> that's actually not true. People do think that. They think that Ralph Nader designed them to, to make cars uh, uh, as boring as possible. But in reality, they're very exciting to drive. And that's partly because electric motors have 100% torque at zero RPM. They just take right off the line. And anyone who's ever driven, say, a Tesla Roadster or a Nissan Leaf or a Fisker Karma, any of these things, they'll know that they can be very fun to drive and, uh, indeed. And uh, you will find no loss of driving pleasure with electrics. So what do you think uh, motivates the, the buyers of uh, EVs? They're, they're paying somewhat of a premium, uh, and they're accepting uh, some limitations on range. Uh, do they want to be green, have the latest tech gadget, keep ahead of the Joneses? Uh, what's driving people to uh, buy these things? Well, I think so far the people buying them, and there's probably right now about 8,500 Nissan Leaf buyers in the U.S. and maybe 6,100 Chevy Volt buyers. I think most of them are what they call early adopters. People are really into technology, and also people are very into environmental issues. I would say those are the bulk of the buyers. The big crunch will be next year when we find out whether... EVs will take off beyond the early adopters, because probably by early next year, most of the early adopters will have their cars. 
Okay, let's move on to range anxiety. This is sort of the fear of being stranded on the road uh, with uh, with no way of refueling. Um, you know, either real or perceived. It's a big issue with electric cars. Um, and so, so public charging stations where you can you can plug in any anywhere is that going to be a big issue in alleviating uh, range anxieties? And do you think they'll become uh, ubiquitous as the cars uh, penetration increases? Well, I have a twofold answer to that because it is part of alleviating range anxiety, at least in people's minds. But in reality, most charging is going to be done at home, maybe 80% of it. And it's going to make a lot more sense to charge at home because it's going to be cheaper, for one thing. And you can fully recharge your car in about four to eight hours with a charger that will be in your garage or mounted on the outside of your house or something like that. The public charging, which is going in very rapidly, I've noticed in my town of Fairfield, Connecticut, that we suddenly, practically overnight, have three or maybe even four public charging stations around my community. But I didn't even know they were going in. And uh, I think on the east and west coast, we're seeing fairly rapid deployment of electric vehicle charging stations. It's really going to overcome the range anxiety issue in a lot of ways. Um, I think one of the reasons we haven't seen electric vehicles take off is because of the lack of this public network, but we are seeing it now. It is not essential to have the public network, but it is sort of a, it reassures people, even if they don't end up using them all that much. And another thing we're going to see is the fast charging stations, which can recharge an electric car in about half an hour. That's 480 volts DC. And the prices on those have come down a lot, so I think we're going to see a fairly wide deployment of those. And they're going to be at gas stations and big box stores and uh, Starbucks, places like that, where you spend a, a few minutes, because half an hour is still longer than what we're used to. Hmm. So, Jim, how would you respond to a critic who, who says that the claims of zero emissions are, are nonsense? Uh, we're just shifting the greenhouse and smog causing emissions from the car tailpipe to a, a power plant stack. Is that a valid assertion? It's something I hear a whole lot. It's probably the most uh, frequently asked question. And people sort of smugly say, well, you're not really doing anything because you're moving all the uh, pollution from the tailpipe to the smokestack. And in my book, High Voltage, I actually quantified what happens if you look at the well-to-wheels analysis of charging from a totally coal grid, which is the dirtiest you could get in the U.S. And we still have coal grids in a lot of the Midwest. But few of our grids are wholly coal. But even if you did a wholly coal grid and you took a battery electric and you charged it off of that, you'd get the uh, well-to-wheels equivalent of a Toyota Prius. So it's still a lot cleaner than the basic vehicle that uh, those smug guys are driving around. <laughs> okay. So uh, uh, Jim's publisher, Rodale Press, has provided KG&U uh, uh, some copies of a High Voltage uh, as a premium for new and renewing members. Um, so give Kathy a call at 303 303- Four four nine four eight eight five, and get your own copy of this super book and help us meet our fall fundraiser goal. Uh, Jim, I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better uh, stocking stuffer than, than your book. Uh, what do you think? It fits in the stocking, too. It's not that big. Yeah, it is. Okay. So moving on to the questions. Uh, so the Obama administration uh, recently, they nearly doubled the uh, corporate average fuel economy or CAFE standard uh, to phase in, but ultimately taken effect in 14 years. Uh, will this regulatory change have a, a big impact on, uh, on the rate of uh, electric uh, penetration into the market? Yes, because the uh, federal government is demanding that by 2025, car makers reach a fleet average of 54.5 miles per gallon. 
that's a big driver for automakers, and it's going to be a challenge for them to reach because we're now probably at about 26 miles per gallon. So it is doubling. And uh, they can do it with gas cars because those are going to be getting cleaner also. And they have a number of technologies that will make gas engines cleaner, including start-stop technology, small engine turbocharging, cylinder deactivation, direct injection. There's a bunch of different things that will work to make the uh, regular car better. But I think inevitably it will lead to a lot of electrification, and I think that's a good thing. I think we're going to see a big deployment of hybrids, plug-in hybrids, and battery electrics. Uh, it's, it's unclear, and it's still very dependent on what happens with gas prices. I think that's one of the bigger things. But we have gas prices. We have global warming as a major factor. Um, we have we have the need and the growing awareness of people of fuel economy as an important thing, and when they make a car buying decision, a lot of reasons for me to be fairly optimistic. I don't think the rate of adoption is going to be extremely fast, and I would say by 2020, maybe 10 or 15 percent of the new cars sold will be battery uh, cars or plug-in hybrids, but it's going to happen inevitably. And you've even got people like Bob Lutz, who is the uh, SUV-loving vice chairman of General Motors, saying the electrification of the automobile is inevitable. Jim, last Friday, uh, the small EV maker uh, Aptera ran out of capital and, and pulled the plug on their uh, on their operation before they could deliver a single car. Is is the day of the small EV niche maker uh, uh, over as, as the big boys, Nissan, Chevy, Ford, BMW, whatnot, uh, move into the market? What's interesting about Aptera, and I interviewed them just before they made their announcement, is they were on the first rung of getting a $150 million federal loan. Their problem was they couldn't raise any private money, and that, that was that's a very interesting aspect of that. And uh, it is very difficult for smaller automakers and startups to challenge the established car makers. We used to have hundreds of car makers in the U.S. Now we've got three, and these new startups are uh, taking them on. It's not just Aptera. We have companies like Wego and Coda and uh, Fisker all trying to take a little piece out of the car market. And any of them would tell you, like I've talked to Elon Musk of uh, Tesla, and he's the first one to tell you this is a very capital-intensive business. Launching a new car platform is extremely expensive, and getting it into the public consciousness to rival you know, the latest entries from General Motors or Ford or, or Mercedes is really, really hard to do. But that's the process we're in now. So, Jim, we're, we're just about out of time, but I got to get to uh, uh, an important question. In your book, you describe driving just about every electric vehicle uh, on the market. Uh, what's your favorite? Well, it, it depends on how much money I have. <laughs> if I had as much money as possible, I'd buy a Tesla Roadster, hands down. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, can you uh, direct listeners uh, to your website for more information? Sure. They can check out jimmodavalli.com, and they can find my book. Uh, it's, it's called High Voltage, and it's on the Rodale website and uh, Amazon, anywhere you look. Okay, as well as uh, at our uh, Boulder Bookstore and uh, the Tattered Cover. I have it on the shelves now. And if the easiest way to get a copy is to call Kathy, 303-449-4885, and become a new or renewing member, and uh, we'll send you a copy of uh, Jim's book. Yeah, it's got a nice sticker on it from the Tappet Brothers, Click and Clack. Who, uh, I'm, I'm their blogger. Okay, that's right. Jim, thank you for being on How on Earth. Sure.
Clearasil and Freedom sitting in my bathroom. The spots on my face can confirm that they don't really work. Proactive solution deserves an execution for being an ablution that does nothing but smirk at me. I'm an acne-ridden If you know somebody who suffers from acne, here's some painful news. A report from the Archives of Dermatology College warns that students taking antibiotics to treat acne are four times more likely to suffer a scratchy throat compared to those who don't. It may take a while to clear up exactly why taking antibiotics for acne is linked with sore throats. But in the meantime, what to do? After all, acne affects over 80% of teenagers in the United States and many adults. According to Colorado State University scientist and paleolithic lifestyle expert Lauren Cordain, there's a simple answer. Cordain says that the best prescription for preventing acne is to eat the foods that have always helped traditional cultures be acne-free. That means lots and lots of vegetables, along with some fruit. Meanwhile, kick out modern foods, especially high glycemic foods. That means avoiding sugary and starchy stuff. You know, sodas, candy, bread, pasta. Cordain also says to eliminate dairy. To check this out, how on earth Shelley Schlender headed up to Fort Collins to talk with Lauren Cordain. This interview begins with what Cordain said when Shelley announced that at least one dermatologist has told her that changing your diet cannot prevent acne. Well, I don't know if they're reading their, their own literature or not, but uh, they should be. We'll type in diet and acne on Medline. There is so many papers on this now. I have to keep going down here. All right, here we go. 2010. Whoever you're interviewing that says that diet doesn't cause acne, let me just quote you here. Dermatologists can no longer dismiss the association between diet and acne, published in the journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Shall I repeat myself? Dermatologists can no longer dismiss the association between diet and acne, published in the journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Do you know who the person was who figured out that the dermatology societies were using sugar pills to check out whether sugar caused acne? Well, we pointed that out in when we revived the whole diet acne argument in 2002. We just pointed out the obvious. The study was published in 1969 in the Journal of the American Medical Association. There was three authors on the paper. And I've met two of the three, and actually one of the authors on that paper reviewed our paper in 2002, published in the flagship journal of the American Medical Association's Archives of Dermatology. So the American Medical Association, their highest journal, published our paper in 2002. We revived the whole notion that diet caused acne. The reason that most dermatologists, like perhaps this person you're going to speak to, believe that is it was based on two poorly controlled studies. The first study, as I mentioned, was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1969. That's like 35 or 40 years, 40 years ago. At the time, the glycemic index hadn't been discovered, and so people didn't know about the glycemic index. And what they did is they fed a bunch of people a chocolate bar because they wanted to show whether or not chocolate caused acne. They made them an identical bar that didn't have chocolate in it, but it had just about the same amount of sugar and, and all the other products that they put in milk chocolate. So it had the milk, it had everything. It didn't have the, the cacao beans. That's all. So, And actually, the company that made it, I think, was uh, Hershey's. And so Hershey's was asked to make a bar without cacao beans. So they made basically a sugar bar that had everything else in it, the milk products, which we also now know is associated with acne. It had the sugar. It had everything. 
But I can't really fault the guys because this was 1969. The glycemic index hadn't been developed until 1981 by David Jenkins. The point is, you can't fault the original guys, but I can sure fault whoever is saying that diet doesn't cause acne because the glycemic index has been around since 1981. Actually, most dermatologists that I meet, they're very open to it. I've been invited to speak at their international conferences. I went back, there's a, an organization called SIDS, the Society of Investigative Dermatology. Uh, they asked me to their national convention a few years back, and I spoke to probably, I don't know, a couple thousand dermatologists at their opening session, and I would say most were very much open to the idea. There's a few that weren't. As I mentioned, the science should speak for itself and what we need are random, more randomized controlled trials. We have one good randomized controlled trial showing that exactly as we predicted that diet seems to improve acne. That trial failed to remove dairy products and had they removed dairy products I suspect that they would have gotten complete remission by many of their subjects. They had a, a drastic improvement in symptoms of all their subjects but they didn't have complete remission and I think that had they removed dairy products they might have seen a complete remission. Thanks to Shelley for that report. Lauren Cordain is a scientist at Colorado State University who is world-renowned for his studies of Paleolithic lifestyles. He's the author of a modern classic, The Paleo Diet, and a brand new book called The Paleo Answer. He is also the author of a book on acne. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The executive producer is Tom McKinnon, who also produced today's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Boom Bip. And we had additional contributions from Shelley Schlender. Ted Burnham is our engineer. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. Or download the free Stitcher app for your smartphone and you'll find there. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Tom McKinnon.